I'll, I'll probably read some version of it, like plus slash divides, tally, I out of 10, that's easy enough. And then I'm not going to go average paren paren zero dot dot 10 paren dot collect colon colon angle, uh, vec angle, underbar angle, angle, yeah, paren, is definitely paren, more paren. pleasant to, to <laughs> read aloud. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor, and we're going to quickly go around and do brief introductions. We'll start with Bob, then go to Nick, and then go to Rich. I'm Bob Terrio. I am a J enthusiast, and I've been programming in J, coding in J for coming up on 20 years. And uh, I am not a professional. I'm just an enthusiast. So uh, take what I say with a grain of salt. I'm Richard Park. Uh, I work for the APL vendor Dialog. I actually didn't know what APL was before I joined Dialogue, but now I love it so much. I teach it to other people. That's my gig. Hi, uh, I'm Nick Passaris. I'm a quantitative developer in the uh, finance industry. Uh, my weapon of choice is Q and KDB. I've been using it since 2006, and uh, I also, also teach a course uh, with using Q as the main, um, main tool at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. And as briefly mentioned, my name is Connor Hoekstra. Uh, I'm your host, and by now you probably know I'm I'm not an APL or a JR or a QR. Uh, I'm a C++ professional developer, but uh, I have a huge passion and enthusiasm for the array languages. So uh, doing these podcasts is it's absolutely awesome. I get to ask the questions and get all the answers before all the listeners do. Um, so I think we have two announcements off the top of the es- uh, episode. I'll, I'll kick that over to Bob, and then we're going to hop into um, reading some feedback that we actually got from a listener, and we're going to read that sort of a couple paragraphs at a time and, and respond to that, uh, which hopefully should be a great conversation. But first, uh, Bob, we'll, we'll start with the announcements. Yeah, starting off with kind of, well, definitely sad news. Uh, Gene Iverson passed away. Um, and Eric wrote this uh, message out to the uh, J forums. It was, uh, I thought, really well put, so I'm just going to read it out. I think it, uh, it covers things quite well. Uh, Gene, Gene Iverson, 1925 to 2021. Jean Iverson passed away peacefully on Friday afternoon, June 25, 2021, in a Toronto hospital. Her children were all able to have good in-person visits with her during her last days. She had a full and wonderful life and will be missed. If Ken was the father of APL slash J, then Jean was as important as a mother. She worked tirelessly alongside Ken, proofreading a programming language drafts and galley proofs. Every APL character that appears in the book was meticulously drawn by her with a K and E Leroy set with a custom APL template. And then in parentheses, first tech stab at the APL character challenge. Then in the late 80s, with Ken and Roger joyously working on defining and developing Jay in Ken's home office, it was Jean who kept them fed and forced them to take breaks and even occasionally go for a walk. Those were some of her hobbies. Her true calling was helping people, especially young people, find their way and a path to a good life. Again, she will be missed. And uh, our thoughts go out to the Iverson family and friends of Jean. It certainly sounds like a very well-lived life, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people will miss Jean. And on a certainly happier note, uh, the other day there was the uh, British APL Association AGM, and during that um, they uh, are going to strongly investigate uh, digitizing all the old editions of Vector and making them searchable on the internet. And so if you have a, a hard copy, good for you. But in the future, we will be able to do searches and actually pull back some of the, the very early articles out of uh, Vector, which will be, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, so I think they're announcing the digitization, but we'll we'll keep listeners updated when uh, that actually starts to come online and, and people can check that content out. Um, all right, so let's let's hop into this discussion. So we got a, a really thoughtful and long email from an individual named Daniel Sockwell. 
and uh, we're just going to read through it. Uh, it's in response to the uh, episode we did earlier on the challenges that face array languages. And so we're just going to start off. I'm going to read the first couple paragraphs, and we've inserted a couple breaks. And uh, then we're just going to chat about sort of, uh, you know, just respond uh, live to this, to this uh, res- feedback that we got. So here we go. Hi, and thanks for the ArrayCast. I greatly enjoyed your recent What Challenges Face the Array Languages episode, but I have a fairly different take on why APL family languages aren't more popular, at least from my perspective as someone who got very excited about APL, but eventually decided not to pursue learning the language further. Here's my APL story. I'd always heard about APL. I think the first in- I first encountered it in the novel The Wizardry Consulted, where it was used as a language that puzzled dragons, uh, but I didn't look into the language closely until I encountered some of Aaron Shue's writing slash talks about how APL enabled concise expressive code what Aaron and others wrote about keeping the cost of rewriting code as low as possible resonated deeply with me and I decided to investigate APL seriously during my initial deep dive I realized that Aaron and I actually lived in the same small town and that coincidence inspired me to send him an email we ended up having coffee which I thought would be a short chat but turned into a multi-hour talk with Aaron where Aaron thoroughly convinced me of the virtues of APL my biggest takeaway from that talk was that the fundamental task in programming is to attempt to solve the impossible problem of leaky abstractions. Most languages take the strategy of trying to make abstractions as non-leaky as possible. And as a then Rust programmer, I recognize that goal in many of the language design choices in Rust. But there's another way to solve the problem. Recognize that all abstractions leak and write code that minimizes their number. Compare the two following expressions. The first from APL, which I will attempt to read out, uh, which is plus slash divides tally, uh, which is a fork next to iota 10, to the equivalent Rust expression, which roughly is average of 0 to 10 collect into vec. The advantage of the APL code isn't just that it's shorter, it's that the APL expression removes a level of abstraction. The APL code is all right there, so you can check for any edge cases or bugs. No abstraction, no leaks. And because APL is so concise, defining average is literally shorter than calling it in any other language. It facilitates this abstraction removal over and over again. And this is where we will do our first break. I think we'll kick it to Nick, because I know Nick has uh, prepared some notes and has some direct feedback uh, to, to what we just heard. Yeah, sure. Thanks. I, I don't doubt that the array languages um, reduce the number of, of abstractions, and that definitely makes the languages very appealing to everyone to use because you're not kind of wondering what's happening under the hood. It's all there in front of you. But I think I don't want to oversell the languages because there's always some abstractions in under the hood that you do end up needing to know once you dig a little bit deeper. And Many of those are, you know, for performance. If everything was an array, um, you know, you're hindered. And we'll talk about that a bit later. So you need to um, understand the implementation in some sense in order to get the, the maximum performance out of your code. The, the first one uh, I want to mention is that, you know, if you have a matrix, the reality is it's either row-based row or column-based. And if you wanted to sum, for example, all of the values in a matrix, you could either first sum all the columns and then sum the result of that, or you could sum all of the rows and then sum the result of that. And the actual memory layout under the hood makes a difference on which one's more performant. Um, so in, in Q, for example, um, every it, it, it looks like every row is a vector. And so uh, if you were to want to sum the values in a matrix in, in Q, the most efficient way to do it is to sum each of the rows and then sum the result of that. Because if you were to sum, uh, sum the matrix, if you just say sum uh, M, if, if M or capital X was a matrix, you would actually be summing across the rows, which is not very memory efficient, and then you would sum the result. You could do it in either way, but knowing the layout of the data structures uh, inside the language really helps you know which is the most uh, a more efficient way of, of doing that. Um, perhaps Jay and APL um, you know, can, can respond to, is there a more efficient method for summing values in a matrix? Well, we've got uh, in APL and Jay, I think these high dimensional arrays that are represented with the shape and then the ravel of all the data. So, I mean, what you're saying, we would probably do plus slash comma in both Jay and APL, um, which is to ravel it first. And then I don't know how far to go with this because it, it is this question of like, to what extent should the language, like in dialogue, we have these idioms, but they're like, 
a bit restrictive in that they're specific sets of tokens that are recognized by the interpreter and then some special code will run that like is there some perfect language ideal where the person can just write whatever they thought of and then the interpreter or whatever will just do the most efficient way to get that answer which obviously is what you're saying is not the case and that is true it's not the case in any of these languages right you do need to know uh something um in terms of memory layout or the speed yeah beyond the fact that because it's all raveled so the memory is all contiguous then that's a really fast access pattern for memory so that's going to be relatively fast um but i don't have enough experience across the languages to know whether the semantics of like a vector of vectors or this contiguous matrix where it really is beneficial or not in q if you were to to do what you're suggesting you know with the comma to raise it would be called raise in q you're actually changing the memory layout you would back you know you would take a bunch of distinct vectors and just start appending them to the end of each other and that would actually just out reallocate all the memory it would be very painful and that's kind of why i suggested first sum over the rows and then sum over the resulting values i do see what you're saying how in apl and j if everything is already in a data structure that the data is all appended to each other you just sum over everything um and that's that is very efficient i mean that's also very specific to this exact problem that you're describing yeah. right where actually um when you have lots of these i don't know it's like in um creating your own abstractions i guess or your own sort of representations or data types they're all based on arrays because apl and j are these array oriented languages you are generally trying to balance in some way the expressiveness of your particular representation for that particular domain like um you know the code just looks really beautiful or it's really easy to see how it's working so therefore you can modify it but then sometimes when you do that you're actually working with a not so efficient uh, representation the most obvious one that comes up in modern apls with like either boxed as in j or whatever nested array system you have is that you know you'll have some really neat little idiom you see this a lot in the code golf competitions or oh, that's a really neat way of getting some result but you're acting on nested arrays which means that your actual under the hood implementation is having to chase a bunch of pointers around um and then you go and you dig up i don't know old vector articles or apl quote quad or something and you find from the 80s or whatever someone has been doing this type of stuff but back then they didn't have nested arrays so you there is where you can find these like specific flat array techniques that end up improving your performance but they are kind of esoteric to the world of programmers writ large and domain experts and stuff like that so it's that kind of awkward balancing act a little bit and and with jay um a lot of it is at least the way i've approached it is that the idioms that you use are the common ones you sort of rely on the fact that those have probably been optimized to a fair level um you know that's the consistent people working on that but um when you get to the point where you're trying to get performance that's when special combinations come in and if you really want to get a higher level of performance you go into nuvok and you start reading about special combinations and certain ways of uh putting verbs and conjunctions together that have been had code written for things like in place so you don't have to worry about swapping your memory back and out if you do certain combinations everything will be done in place and it's done specifically so uh you wouldn't have to go out of place and the code has been written to be able to take advantage of that but it doesn't do it every time you have to use a special combination I want to go back to what uh Rich was saying about wouldn't it be nice if you could write what you wanted to happen and have the the code figure that out and do it for you. Uh in some sense I think SQL on databases attempts to do that for you, right? They have an they have a query optimizer behind the hood and um when you type your query, you don't need to know in principle um which of the columns have the most unique values, where is the index applied, but in practice the reality is that um you if you know the structures under the hood then you could write more efficient sql and the same thing applies with q the important part about q is that um it has an sql uh layer on it and and you can type your sql thinking that i don't need to know about the data structures under the hood but 
that that abstraction is leaky, you need to know the fact that dates are partitioned on disk. Uh, maybe the SIM column has a, a partition attribute on it um, and, and things like that. So the order of your where clauses, where if you came from a normal SQL, you could put your where clauses in any order you want and the uh, query optimizer would take care of that for you. In QXKDB, you yourself are the query optimizer and you need to know how the data is physically stored on disk. And so there's abstractions, but to, to write quality performant code, you need to know about what's under the hood. I guess it also might be worth just pausing to, to uh, we've been using the words Ravel and raise, uh, and everyone that's, I think, an array programmer is keeping up. Um, but uh, there was a point where I had no idea what either of those meant. So do we want to briefly just mention uh, what, what Raveling a matrix is or what raising a matrix is? Yeah, in well, in, in Q, the uh, the term raise is um, if if you had a um, if you you know let's say you had a, a tensor uh, an array of rank five uh, it's, and you call raise, it just removes one level of nesting, uh, and so you would end up with something of a rank four. We rarely use data structures that are that are that deep, and so the typical example would be you have a two dimensional matrix, you call raise on it, you end up with a, a vector. Um, and that's pretty much the standard. I mean, when you do it with dictionaries, uh, if you have a list of dictionaries and you raise it, it'll try to concatenate them all together. If you have a list of tables, um, and you try to raise them, you'll end up with one table with all the tables joined to each other. So you can do it on things other than, uh, matrices or vectors. Another example of when you might want to use it, um, although I don't find it the right way to use it. If you have a function that wants to take an atom or a vector, it can apply equally to both of them, but you wanna make sure that what the person passed into you is always a vector. You can call raise on an atom and it'll turn it into a one element vector uh, or, or list, one element list. Um, I personally, I, I prefer to just append an empty list to that value and that will turn anything into a, a list. Um, but I've seen a lot of code that raises whatever comes in just to make sure it's a list. Yeah, I think it's best not to get too deep on that uh, particular caveat because it's different in all the array languages and like it gets weird in some of them, like uh, dialogue scalar extension. Oh, sorry, singleton extension, right? Whereas not like a one element vector and a one element matrix are kind of treated the same in certain circumstances and it's kind of useful most of the time, but then sometimes it bites you right in the rear end and it's just, yeah. And in, in, in J, um, the Ravel would be used um, on an unnested or unboxed matrix. Um, and a raise is actually a different, it'll take uh, any box and basically flatten it. So you can have any structure of boxes. And when you raise it, you open up all the boxes and put it in a, one flat line. And it's pretty powerful, but uh, that's how you do it. Right. Is that true in, in K and Q that uh, like depth is rank or they're kind of become the same thing in that model rather than the separate that you have in J and APL? There's only lists. There's only a vector. Like there's, yeah, you, right, you, exactly. you would nest, they are nested. Uh, in order to get multiple rank, you, you need to nest the structures themselves. That, that's it's required. In general, we should just know that there's raise, ravel, and list all across the languages. And they all have to do with like unraveling a certain amount of structure, whether that's all of it or a single level. Uh, you know, reach for one of those three. <laughs> and yeah, Nick, we'll, yeah, we'll kick it back to you. I just want to say one more thing before we continue with, with the uh, the letter. Uh, and that's, um, I guess, in some sense about uh, reference counting in, in at least Q, and we can talk about J and APL. Um, when you have a table, so all, all, all data structures are reference counted and things are passed by reference to all the functions. And so, um, well, if you get a vector passed to your function, uh, you're not copying the actual massive vector into the function, you get a reference to it. Uh, but then you actually don't need to fear of modifying that vector. Uh, let's say you add a row to uh, add an element to that vector. What ends up happening is that vector gets copied uh, and the, in, the, in the method is used called copy on write. Um, everything's passed as a reference until you try to modify it. And as soon as you modify it, you get a copy of it. And this is very different than in Python uh, where when you pass in a, a list to Python, if you modify it, well, the, the vector itself that was passed in, it gets modified in the calling function. And that's very tricky when you're not expecting it. Um, in Q, you can be um, 
unconcerned about passing a table into a function. If someone does anything to it, your table is still uh, still the same. Although, you know, there's obviously you're going to get a performance hit if it's copying the whole table within the function. Uh, but those those semantics about how memory is managed, the fact that it's copy and write, um, you know, it's memory is an abstraction and you need to know what's happening there in order to make, again, performant code and uh, correct code. Is that the same in both? I think Jade, I've definitely seen, has the same uh, model. I'm not sure if you you can confirm or deny, Bob. Um, I know that dialogue, I mean, that that is a uh, what do you call it? an abstraction, but it's also like this weird, I don't know what to call it, semantic difference or whatever. It's a pattern. No, more like the end, like me, the user of APL, from my perspective, the arrays are passed by value. Like you said, like you can uh, assign one to another name. And then it's only, you know, when I modify one of them that the actual copy happens underneath. Um, so I don't, I don't think about that that much, but you are right that if I was concerned about performance, I would. And, and in J, that comes down to what I was talking about in special code in place and things like that will be done in a slightly different way than maybe it would be done if you weren't using the special code so that you can make changes. And it, well, and then there's, I guess there's this other thing to introduce even more there's memory maps as well so you don't even have to you can go straight to the disk and pull memory off that and then you're actually changing the memory on the disk if you change that so that's real uh, real reference <laughs> you're going right to the right to the disk to do that and you change things there you change them everywhere so uh you know yeah it's an abstraction and you definitely have to be aware of it before you start playing in those areas because there be dragons so to pick up where we left off, uh, the, the feedback goes on to say, put simply, I was sold and greatly enjoyed solving advent of code puzzles in APL frequently with a solution that would fit in a tweet or in my case, a toot, since I use Mastodon rather than Twitter. So what pushed me away from APL? I still believe in the power of everything Aaron and I discussed, and I still think that reduced abstraction enabled by concise code is a programming superpower. But despite all that, three things caused me to give up on APL, none of which were squarely addressed on the podcast. Poor integration with Linux slash free software. This is related to the point Nick started with about sharing code, but I have something much broader in mind. After writing enough APL to get serious about it, I decided to set up my environment to support writing programs with a broader scope than solving advent of code puzzles. One of the first steps turned out to be surprisingly difficult, writing a simple program that reads uh, from standard input and prints to standard output. The dialog docs have far more info, info about connecting APL to Excel than about using it with a terminal, even though I think that the latter is uh, as the bread and butter of programming in the Linux environment. With some help from Adam and other saintly members of APL Orchard, I was able to get that working. If you're reading this, Adam, thanks. Uh, I think he definitely did read it, <laughs> but it was clear that integrating with uh, normal Linux server tools uh, that are a part of my standard workflow, aka Unix, TCP sockets, Emacs, Nginx, and other servers, uh, terminal emulators, etc., would be a recurring challenge. As someone deeply committed to the free software uh, FOSS ecosystem, uh, being siloed like that uh, felt like a much bigger challenge than just not having a package manager. Um, so we'll pause there, and uh, whoever wants to kick it off can kick it off. Yeah, I think that uh, integration with, you know, well, personally, I use Emacs for everything my whole life. Uh, and that that lack of integration pushed me to building, you know, an Emacs mode for Q. Uh, when I was looking into J and APL, it turns out there are uh, Emacs modes for them uh, as well. And I think they're all they're all available from uh, either ELPA or MELPA. Um, so that integration, if, if, if it turns you off, um, it's definitely there. The one step that I know that I've built in mine is you the the REPL is great and you can use the up arrow to kind of pull back a, a previous statement. But what I find actually even more uh, powerful is the ability to write code in one buffer and then send it uh, into another buffer uh, to for evaluation. So you don't have to actually you can you can have all your code, you can highlight what you need and evaluate it. Um, in addition, Q has the ability to connect to a running server and um, inject code in, in that way as well. And so from within Emacs, you can write code, you can evaluate it, and it evaluates it on a remote server. And that iterative process of development, I think is just unmatched in any other experience that I've ever had. But going back to you know, integration with Linux and free software, um, uh, he also mentioned the fact that he was having trouble to pipe the data from one process into uh, you know, a J or APL process, and then pipe the result of that 
into another process. Originally speaking, that was definitely a problem, uh, at least with Q. The uh, subsequent versions of it added the ability to read from standard in. Now, if it's going to read from standard in, that's also where the REPL comes into play. And so either you can send data through the REPL or you can pipe it in from, the, from another process. And the fact that you can't do this both at the same time makes uh, you know, writing the code a little bit more confusing, I, I would say. Um, but you can read from standard in. Um, one thing I'd say, however, is that because um, um, you know, Q likes to read things all in one chunk, you, know, you, you want to read a whole file. It comes in as a CSV, but when it gets into Q, it's now a table. Right? That's like one operation. It's not a streaming language. Uh, if you were to write similar code in Python, you would open and read standard in and process every record one at a time and then send the result out to standard out one at a time. And that kind of fits along with the model of piping one process into another process. Uh, the fact that Q doesn't stream in that sense, and you could write it that way, but it, it's a lot more uh, confusing in some sense to read the code. The fact that it reads it all in one chunk and then spits it out all in one chunk kind of ruins the, the, the streaming aspect of what you are actually doing. Uh, for, for very massive data sets, I, I do understand how you might want to do that. Uh, but since Q really efficiently does things all in, in, in one chunk, it, it never really, um, for me at least, has become a benefit to write uh, piping code from one process into another. The other thing is, in order to treat cube scripts as a process that run just like a, a Perl or a, a, a Python script, you would want to be able to put the shebang line at the top of the code. Um, I rarely see it, but it actually is supported. And if it finds the, the Q binary as the first item on the first line of the, the code, it will start the process with that. So that, that all works. Richard, Bob, do you want to comment? I feel like Bob, like, we actually chatted about this briefly right before starting recording is that, you know, this in particular uh, issue that he's bringing up, I feel like Jay maybe has has made a lot more progress in this area compared to, I know, he, I think specifically he's responding to APL. Um, but yeah, I think Jay, Jay's done a lot of work there over the years um, in terms of that, like it's an open source. Yeah, and, and Jay actually has three interfaces that you can choose from. One's the console, which is your console line. Um, there's a number of people who only work from that. There's also a web-based um, uh, IDE called JHS, and that's basically it hooks up you, you know your your J core to JavaScript, and so JavaScript mm -hmm. takes the interactions on your uh, all the movements, all the clicks, all that kind of stuff is handled, and then when that information comes in, then it's handled by J, and that's the answer is applied back out to the web page. So essentially, you're running J on a web page, but you're running your J right next to JavaScript. So it's actually very strongly integrated. And in fact, I wrote an um, uh, um, uh, application that can take a noun and it displays it um, and includes a lot more information than you normally get from the text based feedback that you get from J. And the way I did that was I basically wrote an SVG file and then wrapped it in an HTML and popped that on and I'm doing the display that way. So there's a very strong uh, attachment between uh, the web and, and J in that sense. And then the, the third one, just to be complete, is JQT, which also has ways to disp display over the web, but it's not primarily web-driven. It's on the QT environment. Feedback like this is not really news to dialogue, I mean, being um, so, I think proper scripting support, like you described with the hashbang script, is like under development, and maybe see it around dialogue version nineteen or so with any luck. Um, but people come into the people who frequent the APL Orchard chat room have have requested this a lot. But uh, dialogue has historically had specific commercial interests that drive its development, so. That's kind of your reasoning, I suppose. Um, and yeah, historically, it's been this thing, right? That uh, APL is quite cool, but it's a bit of a um, fortress or whatever. So you, you have to struggle a little bit. Once you've got the data in, you're, it's really, really fun. You're, you, you're laughing. And 
once you get the data out, you know, well, you don't have to care anymore. But those processes can be uh, a little bit painful historically. They are getting better. The tooling is getting better. Um, like I say, especially web stuff, scripting uh, with dialogue. But historically, yeah, that's been a pain point for sure. And I, I should mention that Jay has supports Hashbang as well. In fact, there's a, a really interesting fact from 2008, Joey Tuttle talked about how he could put a, um, a verb in line, but wouldn't it, it, to do it effectively, to do it efficiently, he had to change the structure of the verb so that rather than taking in all the information and putting out all the information, he had it so it would take in part of the information, whatever it was fed, and it would only feed out the part that it had processed. So it really became able to be dropped into a pipe that way. And it was the only example I found of doing it, so I don't think it's done very often, but it was pretty neat to see how he had to adjust his function to accommodate streaming, and it actually didn't seem to be that big a deal once he'd, he'd made a few little adjustments to it. Yeah, well, and while we're on the topic of uh, editors, it's worth mentioning that um, there's the dialogue editor, I think is just what it's called, but there's also the open source dialogue ride um, editor, which is super super awesome and and this is totally like random but while we've been talking about emacs versus the three different sort of j editors and and uh one of the things that just popped into my head is that um if you have never played around with j or apl i'm not sure i've seen this in k or q um but it's the visualization of nested arrays is absolutely even on like the command line um in a terminal is absolutely like phenomenal so it's hard to explain unless you see it but basically like when you have a list of strings, you know, cat, dog, mouse, uh, and that gets put in a nested array, you end up seeing basically like a three by one box. And I don't know how they do it, but they manage to get like perfect little boxes, even on, even in a terminal. Um, and, uh, it's so nice, like seeing that visualization instead of just three words next to each other. I don't know why it tickles my brain so much, but like the first time I saw it, I was just like, wow, this is, that's, that's a beautiful, like, why is, you would think that sort of other languages would have this sort of option and you can cut, you can turn it on and off and stuff. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. I found it really amusing when I first learned of um, what we call the line drawing characters, because I guess most people would default to doing like a vertical bar or a minus dash or a hyphen or some other kind of, you know, things people are familiar with in ASCII traditionally or writing word documents or whatever. But these line drawing characters are specific for probably old terminals, right? Where everything back in the day was was via terminals. So you had to have these and there's like a, oh, I can't find them. Doesn't matter. Uh, if you do quad AV in dialogue, I think you get the list of all the characters that used to be in a specific font file nowadays it's all unicode but yeah um they are quite fun yeah don't don't visualize like the readme you know plus sign for the corners and uh you know pipes and hyphens it's a very beautiful like polished connected like you're gonna ask yourself oh wow how did they how did they get that to pop up in my terminal like <laughs> things like that don't look that nice usually it's you know your h top and top are great to look at but uh, they don't look super polished, but these do. I think it's also in J and APL's case, clearly there because the structure can be quite complex and it's also very important to what you're doing in those languages. Oftentimes, part of your solution is you're encoding some of the logic by modifying the structure of your array and then you can do some kind of... Like, what was the recent uh, Rodrigo's... Um, Oh, yeah, he did uh, run length encoding as one of his, Rodrigo Girasarao's YouTube channel, one of his like leak code solutions in APL. And the thing with run length encoding is what is it? It's like a number indicating how many of the next element is going to be there. So he just reshapes that into an n by two so that the length is right next to the element. And then he's doing, and then he does a reshape slash across that reshape uh, re reduce across the rows, and that's how he uh, basically solved it. But there, like I said, the logic of the solution is encoded in the in the reshaping of the array, and so not just you know the shapes of flat arrays, but also in modern APLs, all the deeply nested structure. It's quite important to be able to tell the difference between. It's not always obvious in the basic, even basic boxing in dialogue, um, whether you've got a scalar or a one element vector or a one element matrix or something. So there are these display functions that do the boxing and possibly even extra glyphs around to really indicate or really tell you clearly what the structure is. 
uh, when that's important. It's not always important. And with Jay, um, one of the things, one of the two, two cautions, one is you actually can use the pluses, pipes, and dashes. You have an option with whether you want it to look pretty or not. <laughs> the reason sometimes you use the pluses, hyphens, and dash, or the pipes, hyphens, and pluses is because sometimes when you're dealing with text, especially in emails, the mm. special characters kind of get messed up. So it, it's a way to clean that up. The other thing is, uh, if you want it to stay pretty, stay away from Unicode, because <laughs> <laughs> that can really mess up how pretty those are. Um, and that's I spent an awful lot of time working with my visualizer, um, drawing my boxes so they are pretty, and it's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> What did I, uh, the other day I was showing my, I, I might've told this on the last episode, I apologize if I have, but I was showing my coworkers, uh, one of my APL solutions that used quad C quad a for like lower casing some letters. And, uh, a couple of them were like, Oh, like your Unicode's not rendering correctly. And I was like, no, no, that, that quad is intentional. That's a, that's a box when it's supposed to be there. Um, <laughs> and the other thing I was going to say, uh, I watched that, uh, video by Rodrigo and I had the observation of that, like, Oh, because I saw the reshape reduce and I was like, is it possible to do a replicate reduce, which also has the same symbol as the slash. And then I went and tried it and I was like, Oh my goodness, you can definitely do a replicate reduce. Yes, uh, and that's also, a, that's also <laughs> a curse in trains because we have those hybrid characters where a forward slash or a forward slash bar could be either a function or an operator, depending on the context. Right. So then if you want to write a train, that's all elegant, but it uses replicate, then you have to use right tacker top. I'm just going to shut up because it is. <laughs> we're giving, we're giving Daniel more reasons to add to his feedback. Uh, speak, right, speaking yeah. of which, we should probably, uh, <laughs> we should probably hop back. I'll read the next uh, couple, or I guess one paragraph here, and then we'll take another uh, break. Um, so yeah, picking up where we left off, uh, Daniel, Daniel uh, says to us, sometimes arrays aren't enough. On the podcast, Connor mentioned that APL can sometimes struggle with text munging required for advent of code input. I agree. As great as APL is, it doesn't shine in domains that are primarily text-centric. To a data science, that might sound like a niche concern, but I'm primarily a web developer. My entire platform is built on text. And I'm focusing on text here, but there are other times when a set, hash map, or other non-ordered data structure is a far better conceptual fit for a particular domain than an array. You can model these domains as arrays, just as you can model strings as arrays of characters, but doing so sacrifices considerable expressive power. Similarly, without wading into a whole other debate, sometimes types are helpful. And we'll pause there uh, once again. I'm not sure, if Nick, if you want to start us off again. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, no problem. Um, the, the first, you know, listen, I, he's, he's, he's obviously 100% correct. Uh, and I just wanted to, given that this is a, a podcast about these languages, I just wanted to address what is possible in the languages. First of all, in Q, it has rudimentary regular expression. Um, it, it allows you to do um, stars at the beginning and at the end. Um, but not um, multiple stars within the string in the middle. It definitely doesn't have the full power of Python uh, or Perl regular expressions, like you know backtracking and things like that, or look ahead. Nothing, nothing of that sort. Um, it's it's done me well enough as it is. Um, I think there's a quote that basically, uh, when you have a problem and you say to yourself, "Oh, I think there's a regular expression to solve that problem," you now have two problems. Uh, so it's not clear whether <laughs> Whether or not you know the full functionality of regular expressions, um, you know, will make you you know force the user to learn two different languages uh, beyond just the language they're working in. Uh, additionally, he mentions that you know how you know why don't you have a set? Uh, you know, there's a set um, container, um, and in Q at least you can you can have a dictionary, and if you put a unique attribute on the key, uh, actually you don't even need the unique attribute. Um, just a plain old dictionary, and every time you add elements to it, it will enforce the uniqueness of the key. And that, you know, you can treat that as a, as a set. Um, you can just ignore the value component of the dictionary. And he also mentioned a hash map. Uh, hash maps, again, are dictionaries where, and this is where the U attribute comes in. If you put a U attribute on the key, when you look values up, you actually get a hashing algorithm, which will be used to find the value. So if you have, you know, a million elements in your dictionary, you're not going to be doing a linear search as you would with an array. Um, you can do a, a quick hash map and it will be just as performant as any other languages hash map. Uh, agreed, you know, other binary tree type of uh, data structures don't exist and you kind of have to roll your own. Um, but I just wanted to mention that 
it's not all you know um, downhill just because the only data structure you have are arrays. Um, these languages have algorithms on top of arrays. You can do a binary search on an array and things like that. So it's not so bad. Yeah, I think it's similar to um, what we were talking about before, where you're balancing your sort of intuitive expressiveness until you hit a problem with uh performance and then you're reaching for other things or in the case i guess dialogue does have quad r and quad s which are just regular um plugins to pcre uh, regex engine underneath um so they're pretty handy actually the way they work where you can do multiple regexes with a single um single call to the function is pretty slick sometimes i think there's some nice little ways of of swapping parts of, of text uh, that's quite difficult to do if you don't have that. Well, one of the things that struck me with this is um, often when I'm looking at a problem and it, you know, it doesn't fall apart with an array, which is kind of the feeling you get with some problems, it just falls apart. You go, oh, that's easy, done. Um, but with well, the ones that don't fall apart that way, I have this nagging suspicion that I'm not quite seeing the whole problem. <laughs> and, I, and sometimes it's accurate and sometimes it's not. I can't say that there aren't times when you, you just never quite figure it out. But it's kind of like we talked about, and, uh, and Daniel talks about Aaron Shude, talking about his tree manipulations and stuff. And he's doing this amazing stuff at speed with trees that you, most people don't think is possible to do with APL. Well, he cracked that code and it wasn't easy. But the point is, at some level, there may be a way to do it but it may not be obvious. Um, and that's the feeling I get when I'm working with arrays. Um, the other thing with J is you actually do have the option of, well, in two areas. One is you can do object-oriented. There are things called numbered locales. You can create classes and then create specific in instances. You can have them do behaviors. You can attach methods to them. Um, you know, um, information is attached to them. You can make it unique by the way you put it in. And and so you can create this stuff. It's the the uh, the ability to create it is there. It's not often used because I think usually it's easier to go back to the to the arrays. And the final thing I'll talk about is symbols, which are very underused. But symbols actually are, if you if in in J, if you took a boxed character string, so that the box itself is a single atom and the contents would be a character string, a symbol in J is the same thing except it hash maps so that it's represented a different way. It's not in a box, but it's an atom that is actually hash mapped. So if what you're doing is involving character strings, that's a very quick way to do it. And that is actually built into the language as well. And you can have arrays of symbols and all these kind of things, but it does build this hash mapping ability into what you're doing for searches and things like that. Yeah, no, this is, um, this kind of, what I wanted to say actually is that all of these languages or especially the applications that sort of run the language and do the interfacing and everything, I guess you call it the language interpreter or whatever, uh, often all of our inst respective institutions kind of undersell uh, these additional things that we have for the sake of, of having to interact with the outside world largely or do these other types of manipulations because I think we've spend a lot of time trying to tell people about the benefits of the core language which you know obviously does have these amazing properties and it and i guess mainly it's so different to what else is out there but like you say there are things like hash maps even dialogue you can have hashed arrays um object oriented similar in j and dialogue you can create classes and do things like this it's just not often uh said you know yelled about out loud because i guess it's so basic everywhere else and they were kind of put in just so that you have that option right you have the option in these different systems not only to do you sure you can roll your own solution using just the core language arrays and primitives build up your entire framework obviously that's feels like reinventing the wheel in some cases but you also have the option to change into uh different modes I think in all of these systems, uh, KDB, J, and APL, I think you can do something that isn't just the core language um, in order to facilitate having some kind of bigger framework or maybe do some interfacing, um, create parts of your application which are extensible in the classic you know, object-oriented sense and other things like this. 
Um, so yeah, maybe it's another case like we've talked about before. It's like more of a documentation slash evangelization problem where it's just not obvious to people who aren't in these circles um, that these things exist. So we need to be better at getting getting the word out. I think uh, I think too, it, at least from my like polyglot point of view, um, or I, you know, I'm an aspiring polyglot. You know, <laughs> I code in C plus plus day to day, but I'm you know trying to learn all the languages, and I you know I love learning languages. And one of the things I think to recognize is that like in my opinion, there is no one like perfect language, you know, say, well, what is the best language? You know, there's, there's, if you go on YouTube and like, what language should I learn in 2021? There's a thousand and one videos of people giving their recommendations of this is my top five list of what you need to learn this year, because, you know, Elixir is the new big thing and it's functional programs taking over the world. And, um, in my opinion, like those videos are all really silly because you need to ask yourself first, like, what problem am I solving? And, um, there are just certain programming languages that are better at solving different types of problems. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, uh, I, th I think when this was a couple years ago now when I was at Amazon, but I was, I learned go in a couple days cause it's a very simple language. But one of the things that I think even the doc said is like, go is not a good language for a GUI application design because we don't have libraries supporting it. Like it's, it's primarily the space that it operates in is like running large systems across servers. Um, and they even like they used to market it as sort of a systems level language, but they sort of went away from that because uh, they found that like the, the really, really good use case for Go was like, you know, Kubernetes stuff. And, um, you know, and, and so it, th this ties back to sort of uh, Daniel's feedback is that he says, you know, I'm primarily a web developer. And uh, I don't know, like, I don't want to say that don't go and build your, your websites uh, with, you know, don't go and build it with Dialog APL. I don't know APL well enough to like how, <laughs> how good do they have support for those kinds of libraries and things. But in my mind, if I'm going to build a website, probably APL is not, as like a non-APL expert. It's not the first language I'm going to reach for. I'm going to reach for a language like JavaScript or, you know, some other, you know, what's more known as like a web front end language. Um, even though I don't know those languages at all, uh, I know that just like those are the go to for that sort of particular problem. Um, the same way that. But it's also because they have frameworks built and community contribution uh, going back right. to you know a lot of what we were talking about before the languages itself might be able to do it but there's no django for <laughs> for apl uh you know ruby on rails they don't where is that for for apl so that that's potentially maybe the part of the problem we have uh dialog my server slash it's called dui it's like a web service framework but you can also write web pages in your apl but i remember a user meeting couple of years back, um, some Italian high school students came and they did like a, a problem solving contest with us who had attended the user meeting. And their um, thing was a web framework that is set up for like doling out the problems and keeping track of scores and stuff. And I remember they'd said, I don't know how much time they'd spent on it, um, but like they were aware of my server, but because of their familiarity with it, what they actually did was set up a, a Python Django server and then use the Python to dialogue bridge uh, to set that up. So I guess, yeah, you reach for the tools that you're aware of or the ones you think will be best for the job. And then you hope that you can plug the other pieces together. Um, like a lot of people use APLs, you know, J and Q as a kind of Swiss army knife of doing other miscellaneous specific things that they can think of how to do. And then for a lot of the big picture stuff, they'll stick to the established kind of frameworks and languages that, that are out there and have, uh, like Nick said, lots of community contributions and lots of support and Googleable answers, things like this. And and with uh, JHS, um, the the front end for for J in the on the web, um, Eric's actually run us written a little small subset to run it, so it's it's really easy to learn. Um, it's quite not quite as powerful as a lot of the other frameworks, but you can get into things and do them very quickly, very cleanly. So it has there's actually this sort of little framework that sits within JHS that you can use yourself to write your own web pages. Um, they're limited, but uh, if you want to go further with it, you can always extend them. Yeah. So I guess I guess yeah. The overall thing is just there's there's times and places where languages will excel. Like if I'm going to write an iOS app, you know, 
sure, I can go I can go try and use APL, but probably it's just easier to go use Swift um, <laughs> because that's what that language is primarily designed for. And trying to use Swift outside of iOS, app, iOS apps or, you know, that ecosystem is extremely challenging. Like they're, they're trying to work on that, you know, and, and, oh, if you just want to build a standalone sort of game, um, you know, it's a lot easier to do that in a language like C++ or something um, because there's more of an ecosystem there. So it's uh, it's always good to, like, look at what domains does it best for, but definitely that's something that I just thought about is uh, depending on the language, if someone comes and says, yeah, I tried to do this and it wasn't great, like, that's not necessarily always a bad thing. So further on the letter, depending on how far we manage to get today or if this is going to come back another time, Daniel talks about the Raku programming language. Uh, so I decided to ask in the APL Orchard because I know there's a couple of people in there who do Raku and stuff um, to give me their thoughts on the kind of contrast, but it's kind of relevant to what you're talking about. So I thought I'd just slot it in here where um, he said, if I want most of my work done for me and I want nice errors and nice documentation, I would always go for Rakudo. If I want to do something interesting and improve my understanding of an algorithm, I'd use APL or an APL family language. So I don't think that's comprehensive in any sense, but that's one example of this, you know, someone who's decided for themselves, you know, this is what I like to use APL for, and this is what I like to use something Raku for. So at this point, I think we'll hop back to the third and final point uh, that Daniel made, and it's on the following. Metaprogramming, introspection, and extensibility. These days with defunds, uh, that's DFNS, user-defined operators, and all of the features of modern APL, it's no longer fair to describe APL as a diamond that's beautiful in its current form, but that can't be extended in any way without ruining the whole effect. Yet some of the spirit remains. When writing APL, I didn't feel that I was on a par with the language designers, building my own libraries with exactly the same power they have when adding new primitives. The power of metaprogramming isn't one I reach for often, but when it's the right tool, it's usually the right tool by a huge margin." And we'll kick it off uh, for folks that want to respond. I think metaprogramming is, is a very uh, powerful concept uh, and paradigm. And um, the, the one thing that Q has that goes along those lines is the ability to do introspection on, on the function. So if you call get on a function, uh, what you get back is a, a, a list of items. Um, one of the items is the, the the arguments that are being passed to it? You know, how many are they? What are their names? Another element of the list is what are the local variables that are defined in the function, and what are the global variables that are that are accessed from within that function? Another element uh, is that the actual raw function text. Uh, if you wanted to redefine the function by manipulating it, you could actually grab that text, prepend some new text in front and some other text in the back, and then eval it and store it back into the function that was previously de uh, defined. That's not as elegant as perhaps what Lisp would, would allow you to do where you can just, everything is just a list and even the code is a list and you can prepend and postpend um, or, or even insert in the middle all you want. Uh, but the functionality happens to be there. I've actually used that functionality to write you know, a function profiler. You grab the function, you prepend a timestamp, you postpend a timestamp, you uh, subtract the two and insert the result into a table, and you can now run your code and analyze the results of, of, of the profiling. So that is pretty interesting, and I say imperfect, but I would say other languages probably do it in a more elegant fashion than that. Rich and Bob, anything you want to add to the extensibility, introspection, or metaprogramming points? It's interesting because it's, there's been some new developments in primitives in J. One of them is a fold primitive that's been introduced. And right now it's written as a J add-on. So it's written in J. It hasn't been put into the C primitives. It's a primitive that runs in J. So in essentially what, what's happening there is the language designers are using exactly the same tools that you would have to use to create their primitive. And they're testing it out that way. The other thing that's interesting is they've taken some of the uh, calculus um, primitives and they've moved them from being in C back out to J. And the reason for doing that, now they're sitting in a library, is it's easier for people to extend them and adapt them to whatever their particular needs are. What they were finding is a lot of people were coming and saying, well, this doesn't really work in this edge case or whatever, calculus doesn't work. And it was getting so hard to keep up with what people's needs were. They said, well, why don't we just put it out into an area? You make the adaptations you want. You 
change the, the verbs to what you want to, it'll be performant and you'll have the chance to change it as you wish. So in that sense, it's sort of an indication that with Jay, they really have tried as much as possible. You use the same tools that the designers of the language are using. They won't necessarily become primitives, I guess, along the line they could, but uh, that's the sort of thing that Jay's been doing. In addition, everything, if you want to look at a verb in Jay, you just type the verb's name, it comes back at you. If you want to make adjustments to that, you can, it's called an atomic format, which means it's a format that's actually uh, captured as a noun, even though it's a verb, it's called a gerund. So if you think like the art of cooking, cooking is a gerund. It's not a verb at that point. It's it's something. It's a noun. It's cooking. Um, to cook is a verb, but you can capture that cooking, that 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 verb, and make it a gerund, and then you can do all sorts of manipulation with it. But then you're starting to get into rewriting programs within themselves, and that can get messy. I mean, again, it's kind of a dangerous area to get into. Yeah, I was going to say um, a couple of things. One is recent primitives in dialogue beforehand. I think have been modeled as APL models and you know they might not have like you say a unicode primitive symbol uh that you can use although I don't remember it's not so, it's not developed anymore but uh Nick Nikolov's NGN APL you actually could redefine plus if you wanted to um <laughs> uh, I think it fell over when I wanted to turn the split train into uh, a, a uh, emoji knife i was going to have that as a split function but it, it wasn't able to handle that because of the double width unicode character or however it handled it so that was kind of funny but i do know that you know for example under which j has uh i can just write that as a user-defined operator i tend to put underscores on underscore u underscore if i'm defining my own dyadic operator just for my own so I can see what type it is and then on that note um, something that's a little bit awkward is the indexing function squad in dialogue but you know um, there is a construct which I think we've taken to calling select or the indexer which allows you to select in a slightly different way and I use I just use that these days I'll do capital I gets the definition of select and then because it's a single letter it doesn't look too ugly in the in the rest of the code um so yeah there are things that allude to that i don't have loads of experience on you know about other languages in the way and i've heard that lisps and scheme and stuff have really nice metaprogramming or maybe it's been argued they make it too easy to do metaprogramming i don't really can't really speak on that um but i know that extending the language is something that aplers are interested in i know for example adam um, has both a dialogue extended is a GitHub repository of his where he's just taken some of the primitives and extended them. And there's also another one called APL Prime that I think he started on, which is trying to iron out some of the historical warts a little bit. So they're not, so APL Prime is not backwards compatible with dialogue, but I think extended is or whatever. But you know, there are efforts in, in that in that world um but i don't know if that's metaprogramming in the same sense that daniel meant speaking of uh lisp the um one of the co-creators of scheme guy Steele, um who has worked on a number of languages across the years um he is a big apl fan but in his uh fabulous uh growing a language talk and paper which we will definitely link in the show notes he makes a a remark and kind of criticism um, that he thinks one of the reasons that APL wasn't as successful as that it's, it's what was sort of remarked on a couple times now is you can't add uh, a Unicode like primitive um, when you are writing a library, it does not look like the language. And it's one of the few languages that exists that actually has that case when you're writing Java code or C plus plus code or Swift code or Python, your library that you're writing, the code that you're writing looks like the core language. Um, but APL does not have that. And I'm not sure whether it's true or not, but it is, I think, an interesting remark that in APL, and I guess Q doesn't have this problem because Q is wordified, so you can write functions and that looks like the, you know, the built-in functions. Um, but definitely for APL, um, you, can't, you can't write, you know, uh, you know, exactly like a, not that I'd be trying to add a knife emoji, but <laughs> if I wanted to go find some unused, weird-looking Unicode character, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't define that to be something. At least I don't think, think you can. And um, yeah, it's an interesting remark. Not sure if anyone wants to respond. I think it's just something people haven't pushed for. That hasn't hasn't 
not enough people have found it so desperately in need that uh, an implementer implements it. But I don't think it's like it's not in principle uh, not doable or anything. We will uh, we will close out with um, uh, not the end of the feedback that we got, um, but uh, this last paragraph that just it says uh, Daniel sort of wraps up his uh, three criticisms by saying, due to these drawbacks, I reluctantly decided to shelve APL and go back to Rust. Uh, but I resolved to keep my eyes out for another language that could deliver the abstraction smashing power of APL without some of the trade offs. And um, I think we will find a way to link the full feedback um, if folks want to uh, read the full feedback. Later on in the feedback, he starts to go on to talk about uh, a programming language, Raku, which was formerly known as Perl 6, and talks about how a lot of the same advantages and reasons he fell in love with APL originally can be found in, in Perl 6, and it's it's definitely an interesting read. So uh, we'll link that for anyone that's interested. Um, any last uh, comments folks want to make? before we head out i think actually we did have one announcement that i believe rich you wanted to make uh oh yeah just a another sort of general heads up about uh those who are interested in the history of apl and apl related languages uh adam brzezinski who's obviously a regular on this podcast hosts every four weeks uh an event called apl campfire it's free open to attend for anyone who's interested and if you want details on when the next one is and how to attend, you can go to apl.wiki forward slash campfire. And I think with that said, once again, thank you to Daniel for uh, providing us with such a, a long, wonderful email, and uh, which caused this whole podcast episode. And I think, Nick, this will be the last time you're on for a little bit. So once again, thanks for uh, uh, coming on and, and sharing your knowledge about Q. And, uh, no problem. Yeah. Thank you. Really appreciate you and uh, coming on. And I think we'll say uh, happy array programming and have a great day. <laughs>